welcome to Macy's Page for Stage uh, with the incomparable January LaVoy, uh, star of T.O.'s Fires in the Mirror, uh, written by Adam DeVere Smith. Um, yeah, so let's just get started. Um, so January, you've been you've been sitting with this play for about a year or more. Um, could you talk a little bit about some of the things that you've discovered while engaging in Anna Vera Smith's dramaturgical approach, as well as the themes that the play covers? Sure, yeah. Um, first of all, one of the most fascinating aspects of working on this piece now has been just the seemingly endless number of rabbit holes one can go down online to find out where they are now, what they've been doing, you know, who became, I mean, one of my favorite stories that I tell a lot um, is that Norman Rosenbaum, uh, who was Yankel Rosenbaum's brother who appears in the, in the show in two of the monologues, um, became quite close with Carmel Cato, yeah. the father of, of Gavin Cato. And they would meet up in Crown Heights on the anniversary, many years. Um, Norman passed away about two years ago. He was quite young, he was only 63. Um, but the two of them forged this incredible bond mm -hmm. over what happened to them. Um, and that to me is a very hopeful story, something that came out of this terrible tragedy and this terrible you know, sort of political, cultural, social tragedy, but then this incredibly personal tragedy that happened to these two families specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and to know that those two men were able to find each other um, and to be able to unite in some way and, and, and help their communities move forward um, is pretty incredible. Um, but, you know, Big Mo, the rapper, she's a, she's a college professor, I think now, and yeah. a writer <laughs> and, you know, all these different folks, you know, Reverend Al's contract on MSNBC, you know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, you see all these folks and you just think, wow, what an amazing, what an amazing snapshot to have. Um, and, and to be able to go back and look at the kinds of the, the paths that people's lives take. So that's been really fun. And then I would just want to say that sort of dramaturgically, there's so much I didn't know about the show. You can't learn you can't learn everything there is to know about the show until you put the show together. Yeah, definitely. Because what we learned about the individuals and even the things that we thought we knew about the individuals when we were doing, when we were working each monologue, which was the bulk of our rehearsal process, you know, every day we'd come in and do, you know, about a third of the show and just dive in really deeply to these pieces and, and just take apart every word they said and what do they mean and where are they from and what are they talking about? And then to sort of put them together mm. and have to say it all from start to finish. Mm. I mean, that's the true brilliance. There's a lot of things about Ms. Anna DeVere Smith that are brilliant. Right. But the true brilliance is her dramaturgical creative ability as a writer, um, as a, I mean, it's, it's an ethnography in some ways, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's her chronicling the sort of depth and breadth of a people through their own words, but you don't really get it until you get it all in contact. It's all in contact. And, you know, mm -hmm. Matt can, can tell you that when we first started talking about the piece way, way, way back, director brain, when I was talking about, um, 
you know, the sort of idea of what this piece is about. And I said, you know, for me, it's collisions because, mm. and, and that's quite literal in terms of the inciting event, which is a car accident. But then it's also, you know, these two very different cultures colliding in this one neighborhood and the way that the individuals inside it collide. And then I discovered this other layer once we got into really deep in rehearsals and performance that is the collisions, the orchestrated collisions uh, that Anna Devere Smith creates to give you these very different lenses on the story. So she's a genius, what can I say? Yeah, she's extraordinary. <laughs> and, and in addition to being like an amazing actor and an amazing director, you're also an educator. So looking at the play like through that lens, um, what do you think that fires um, has to offer or has to teach theater students, but also students in general? Well, the first thing that I've been saying to all of my wonderful students who've seen the show or watched it online and reached out to me and told me how much they enjoy it is that I will never again be permissive when they come into class and say that they didn't memorize their 90 second <clears throat> monologue. Oh, I didn't have time to memorize my one minute monologue. Right. That's not going to fly with Professor Lavoie ever again. Amen. Um, <laughs> that's one lesson. Um, you know, I think for my acting students, the way I've been talking about it with a lot of them is it, I think that as a piece, it sort of turns a lot of um, doctrine about the creation of character mm. and uh, the sort of necessary preparation for character on its head. And this is something that actually a couple of professional actors who've watched the show have, have talked to me about is, you know, there's this sort of athleticism of being someone and then being someone else instantaneously and then being someone else instantaneously. And I think it sort of proves that a lot of what acting students are taught, you know, about, um, how to get into character and, and, and how to sort of physically prepare and all these things. I'm really now very interested in exploring and committed to this sort of idea that if you do the homework, mm. it can happen in an instant. And this is maybe something I didn't even understand as well or as articulately inside my own process until I started working on this piece and sort of had to confront it. You know, don't, I didn't, I don't have the luxury of standing off stage and working up the memory of the character or, you know, physically doing the whatever it is that you sometimes do before you walk out on stage, that's all gone. Mm. Um, and so to be able to achieve it, and now I'm sort of reverse engineering it as process and going, huh, how did I do that? I didn't just do it because Anna Devere Smith wrote a play and said I had to. How did I get there? How was I able to understand what was my process in meeting these characters, understanding their physical lives? I mean, I'm also a voice actor. So for me, a lot of it comes from the vocal choices, mm -hmm. uh, which sometimes were not my choice. Uh, you know, we have extant video of a lot of these folks from the time. And so, you know, that, you know, that very high voice that you hear for Letty, you know, that's, that's Letty. That's what she sounded like. You know, when my mom was watching her on Donahue back in the day, that is what she sounded like. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, I think, as a, as a 
sort of thought incubator for process for actors and, and thinking about different, more nimble approaches to character work. Um, and in terms of other students, all students, any student of history or, or culture or politics or economics, um, I just think it's, it's invaluable to have this sort of verbatim record of what people in an unguarded moment you know, are talking about. And when Anna talks about her process, she did this wonderful podcast with Chris Hayes just a few months ago. Um, and she talked a lot about her process and she talked about how you have to get people talking for a really long time before they start talking. Right. Um, and I'm very conscious of that, that all of these monologues are, they begin in the middle except maybe the very first one, except Ntozake Shange. Right. Because you hear her considering the question that Anna has asked her. But other than that, I think we are very much sort of in the midst of um, a person's thought process yeah. and what that can teach us and show us about what people hide, what they reveal, what they want, what they think they want, what they think their motivations are. Um, I just think that's you know an invaluable thing for for anybody to to learn about. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, so a, a, as a person that's like a a, a rather new Atlanta resident, welcome, welcome to the game. Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Um, how do you think this piece resonates with with both Atlanta, the city, and maybe its history, but also how does it resonate like right now with what's happening in the country in general? Yeah, I mean, right now, if we limit that to like 36 to 48 hours, because right now change is so constantly. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, just to, you know, to that point, I remember thinking back in January when we had the runoff election and suddenly we had our first Jewish senator and our first black mm -hmm. senator. And I was like, this is the play we're doing. Wow, this is amazing. I'm sure this is all I'll be thinking about come May, uh, you know? And then in the meantime, like the rest of the world, you know, just explodes with all of these, these other issues, be they racial, religious, cultural, what have you. So I, you know, I think it's interesting, right? I, I, the thing that I've been thinking about the most in terms of being an Atlantan, and I'm so in love with Atlanta and I'm so grateful to be here. And I loved New York and I loved living there for 20 years, but oh my God, Atlanta's where it's at. Um, we have this Buckhead succession movement. Oh yes, we do, don't we? Right? <laughs> we have this really interesting thing that is happening where a, a, a segment of our city is trying to self-segregate, isolate, break away because they feel, as I've read, has been stated, um, that, the, that there are certain um, elements, there are certain um, uh, problems that they feel are, that they feel they have no responsibility for and that they have not contributed to these problems in any way and that their tax money is not being used for the right things and so that they, that, that, that this shouldn't be their problem anymore and they should just sort of be able to draw a line. Um, I've been calling it Buckhead Brexit. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Oh, please you know, copyright I, that, that's it. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, I mean, how, how it, this is this is what's fascinating to me. 
if you were uh, one of these folks on this on this committee and Buckhead, who's who's interested in making this move, are you looking across the pond at all and seeing the unintended consequences right. that are ha playing havoc with the lives of the folks on both sides of the Brexit divide, right? Mm -hmm. But people don't seem to want to look beyond, you know, the tip of their own nose and um, you know, it's just, I've been fascinated reading all these debates and, you know, this, this, this idea that somehow communities are not inextricably linked, you know, that there's this, there's this idea that you can simply, and, and Tazaki Shange says it in the first monologue, she says, um, she says, uh, identity is a way of reminding myself that I am not necessarily what's around me. I become part of my surroundings and I become separate from them. And it's being able to make those differenti differentiations clearly that lets us have an identity. And like, if your identity is Atlanta, or your identity is Buckhead, or your identity is Georgian, or your identity is your religious group, or your race, or your gender, or whatever. The fact of the matter is, it is fluid. It is always fluid. And you are not just that thing that you choose to identify with. You also become part of your surroundings, and you become separate from them no matter where you put yourself. So this idea that we have this level of autonomy and control over what we are and who we are and how we are, it's just this very interesting little, little myth that we like to tell ourselves, I think. Um, so relevant to Atlanta, I think, holy Oh cow. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like the secession all over again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so having to, you know, I mean, you mentioned the, the idea of the athleticism of, of this process and this approach, the sort of physicality of it. And the fact that you have to embody, literally embody all of these characters. And in, in discovering this kind of process, this new process of, of embodiment, are, has your opinions about these characters, your personal opinions about these characters changed? Every day. Every day. <laughs> Every day. So give us like maybe one or two examples I, of a character I mean, or two. Any person who was in the on the Zoom rehearsal process for this show every day could tell you that Leonard Jeffries, the guy who does tells the roots story. Uh, I mean, I just loathed it's the longest monologue in the show. So no surprise that the actor is like, ah, I hate that one. <laughs> uh, but it also just he was so mysterious to me. I couldn't the more they jump around in their own stories, the harder they are to sort of, the harder the nut is to crack, right? Mm -hmm. And he's just all over the place. And then my friends started seeing the show, my parents, my sister, and he came up every time. They're like, I could listen to that guy talk forever. He's wow. such a great storyteller. And then I was sort of like, oh, oh. yeah. People are enjoying it, huh? Maybe I like it more than I thought I did. Um, it's a very <laughs> can't keep a good storyteller down. Um, but the, but that's what's interesting is that um, there are a lot of folks in this play who say things that I personally find abhorrent. Mm -hmm. And that was probably the hardest part about learning the play is that in order to really, you know, just simply memorize the words, I have to internalize them. Yeah. It's very hard to internalize ideas and arguments that you find abhorrent. Um, 
And so that was a hurdle. And then once I got past that hurdle, then once I did get to really start to embody them, I mean, the key to it is empathy, of course, Mm -hmm. but empathy can be really hard to generate um, when people are saying things that you so deeply disagree with, but when you can get there, and that I guess is my sort of shallow actor story about Leonard Jeffries was that I didn't have empathy for him until people thought I was good at playing him. Right. And then suddenly I thought he was great. Um, <laughs> suddenly I found some real affection for the guy. Um, but you know, there, there are so many things that I've found now, like now I'm finding these connections, not just in adjacent monologues, but five or five monologues later or six monologues before all of a sudden I'm able to make these connections and the, the sort of neurons are firing in my brain. And so I get this sort of excited anticipation because I know I'm deploying something in monologue seven that's going to pay off in monologue 17. Mm. So there's also a sense for me of like, oh, now I'm excited to do, you know, I mean, like I love Sonny Carson. He's just, he's so cool. Um, But there's, there's different types of excitement in doing that because when Sonny Carson says preferential treatment, those, those words in his mouth mean something completely different than the first time we hear the phrase preferential treatment, which is out of Michael Miller's mouth in a monologue entitled Heil Hitler. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, it's just, it's so funny because, you know, it kind of rolls off my tongue when I'm doing it, but even just now saying it out loud, I get these chills because it's just hard. It's hard to, it's hard to embody. It's hard to embody the damage that we do, the passive damage that we do to other people with words, you know? Um, So I find it, it changes, it changes a lot. It changes a lot. Um, but there's, you know, great moments of great joy with some of them and great fun, um, which again was something I wasn't expecting to find in this show. Um, great satisfaction. Some of them are very self-satisfied. Mm-hmm. And when I can get into that mode, that feels really good to play. Cause I don't know that I'm, I'm not, I don't know that I'm a person that has access to the level of self-satisfaction that some of these characters do, but when I'm playing them, I get to feel what it's like to be that, that self-satisfied. That's kind of fun. <laughs> An anonymous girl. Like whenever I see anonymous girl, I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> I love this kid. I love her too. I love her too. She's, she's very precious. She's probably my favorite just because she has no agenda. She has no, she's just excited. She's excited to share, you know, she's got her lip gloss. Life is good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So that's all I got. And I'm sure that these other folks have some questions though. So I'm all opening right. up the room to everyone else. Um, what do you want to know from January? Can I, can I selfishly jump in? Yes, you can. <laughs> um, um, so it's been a while since we were able to do plays. This is kind of a deep end for like, jumping in to do place um, again after 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 a pause or our kind of necessary pause um, but just as a as an actor as an artist what was it like to start again what 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 what, what was expected and what was unexpected and just how did that experience live for you I mean I have to say this isn't a word I would use a lot in my own life, but it felt quite sacred. Mm. I mean, I got, I think I have it right here. Yeah, this is the opening night. My, my agents in New York sent me flowers. Oh. 
And the card that they sent says, Dear January, opening night. This is the first in over 15 months, and we're so glad it's for yours. And, you know, when I got that, I just, ugh, you know, because who am I <laughs> to be the actor of all their hundreds of clients, right? Who gets to be the first, but also like, yeah, I'll do it. It's me. I'll take it. I've got it. Um, I'll lead the charge with my good friends from theatrical outfit who've done everything in the world to make this happen. Um, and our creative team and, and, and also sort of feeling like, like you can breathe again. And I don't, I don't, I mean, isn't that the metaphor for the whole last year and a half of our lives, right? But those of us who make theater breathe differently. I mean, we're taught, it's one of the first things we're taught in acting school, right? Is how to breathe. The breath is everything. And the number of times this year when I became conscious of holding my breath in a public space or while I was out for a run because I passed someone, even though I was wearing a mask, the number of times I felt my breath obstructed, my ability to, to shout, to be loud, to, you know, all of these things that are part and parcel of what we do in the theater um, that I always took for complete granted um, because they're the basics, right? You have to breathe, you have to be able to speak, you have to, you have to be heard, you have to you know, move through space. So I've been incredibly aware of all of these tiny components of what we do in the theater, not just play, making plays, right? Like we all got making plays taken away from us, but also we got that, that type of breath, that deliberate breath, that shared air, right? That's the difference between watching a movie and going to a theater is that you feel the other people laughing, you feel them. I mean, the first day that we were in the theater and we had just us, you know, just the crew and, and the creative team and everybody, and somebody laughed. I mean, I was, I was blown away because I've been working on this piece for five weeks on Zoom. And as everybody <laughs> knows, proper Zoom etiquette is that you mute yourself. So I didn't even know that there were, I mean, I knew I thought, I knew there was stuff in the show that I thought was funny, but I didn't know anybody else thought it was funny because I never heard them laugh. I never heard a single person laugh through the entire rehearsal process or gasp or anything. So yeah, it's just been, it's been wonderful. It's, it's been, um, but like interestingly forensic you know, of noticing all the little components. You know, I'm all alone in my big dressing room and there's this giant air filter that is, con that's my, it's like my Siri. It's like my friend, I talk to it because it's the only other thing in the room. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's, it's bizarre. R2D2. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My little Wally. It's bizarre, but it feels really good. And it makes me feel confident that we are indeed on our way back. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, man. Uh, a question from Sid. Uh, the acting looks so very physically demanding. What do you do to keep your energy up in each performance? Well, I'll tell you that 2.30 performance on Sunday afternoons a lot easier than those evening performances. Right. Not getting any younger, <laughs> that kind of energy all day. Um, Cause it is, it's, it's a tremendous amount. It's, but it's, you know, there's the energy of doing, you know, follies. There's the energy of doing a giant musical. And then there's the energy of this piece which is a tightly coiled spring. And um, 
one of my best friends who, who watched the live stream from New York our first weekend, she said, I couldn't stop watching you in the transitions because you were you. And I would see, and you were moving with all this like incredible economy, like all of a sudden you were just like, and go here and do this and da, 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 and then boom, and then you'd be this other person. And I feel that in the, there's this sort of tension in my body when I'm moving from character to character of like, I can't let the ball drop, but I also, I'm, I'm not any of, I'm not any of them. I'm in this sort of liminal space where I'm not me, but I'm not them. So it's this sort of, yeah, it's like this droid version of me. <laughs> that's like, you know, do the seven things you have to do and, and you know, pick up the toothpick and drop the cross and, and put on the yarmulke and da 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 and sit and go. Um, so the physical demand of that, that part is the part where I feel it the most. I don't actually mm -hmm. feel it when I'm playing the characters. Oh, I feel it in those little interstitial moments. Um, but yeah, by the end, I mean, whew, when I'm getting to those last three or four, the energy, I have to remind myself and everyone in between, you're starting again. You know, don't let the energy start to fall off because you have to, the, the 26th character has to have the same amount of energy as the first and second and third. Um, so yeah, naps. Yeah, and, then you have to, and the, the idea that you have to end on, on, on Cato, which is such this like emotional, beautiful moment to end on that, you know, it, it always, yeah. you know, when, every time I've seen it, I'm like, oh, that's the cherry on top, like that, it's <laughs> the cherry on top. And you know, God bless Adam, because he was so generous with me, um, my co-director, who was just took such great care of me. I mean, really incredible care of me. And about the last five, four or five rehearsals in the rehearsal room before we moved into the theater, we would get to Carmel Cato and I would basically just go through the motions. I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can't do it without the whole show behind it. And I don't have the whole show yet. And he would just say, understood. And he trusted me that I wasn't avoiding a thing I didn't want to do, which, you know, actors are guilty of all the time. But I knew if I don't feel all of the things, if I don't feel all of the rage, the anger, the confusion, the grief of all those other characters mm. and push it down to get to the next one and push it down to get to the next one, I can't get there. That's right. the other thing about the way she built this play. She serves the actor who has to make the performance by giving them everything they need to get there. That's great. That's great. Uh, uh, Sid has a comment as well. Uh, it feels like there, there, there should be a follow-up play based on uh, 2020. Ooh, I would love to, to see those characters now. Imagine. I, I mean, I also think you know, this makes me think, putting my professor hat on, how interesting would it be to have students build a play like this now, based on mm. based I on mean, what's happening to them, and, and and any topic of your choosing, right? Like anything you want to talk about, just get a bunch of people in your life and ask them some questions, right? And perform what you see, because I really think that you know. It's the long form conversation mm. 
it's people being able to have long thoughts that allow them to work things out. This is why I'm sort of allergic to social media and I'm really, I'm not a Luddite. I love my computer, I love my smartphone, whatever, but these quick hits, you don't get anything done. You have to have time to develop ideas, to stack concepts on top of one another, to debate, to really express your own thought, pain, grief, joy, uh, desires. I don't think, I think we're, I think we're losing our ability to do that a little bit because it's like 240 characters or whatever. And that's how you're, so we're, we're actually learning how to express more with less, which I think is counterproductive for most of us. Right. 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 It's good for the internet. Right. 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 It's good for the bandwidth of the right. internet, but I don't think it's good for these people. You know, the, yeah, because there's not enough time for us to process it and to like really reflect on it. You know, the, the thing about the way that, you know, what, however many characters, you know, a tweet is, is that that's not enough time to really unpack an idea or an issue. And we reward people, right? We're making, we're making it a virtue right. with clicks and likes and sponsorships and influencers and whatever to be able to express yourself and 240 characters or 30 seconds or less. Now we're, we're sort of privileging the ability to do that. Right. And what's lost, you know, is this, I mean, I can tell you this whole last year and a half during COVID, I would have students come to my virtual Zoom office hours. And these are students I some of have never met in person, right? Mm -hmm. And I could set my watch right about the 12 minute mark of talking. Most of them would start to cry for whatever reason, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it was about their schoolwork or their family or their fears or COVID or, but they needed that much time. <laughs> you know, they would say, can I meet with you? Sure, you know, and I could tell they would be upset and they would come in and, you know, they'd be, well, it's this and it's this and it's that and it's, and then all of a sudden, you know, yeah. they're really present, but it takes a minute. This is how we're built. So. Mm. I think Brenda might have had a question. I, I saw you unmute yourself. Brenda? Okay, maybe not. So Matt has a question. Uh, <laughs> what was it like to wear the director's hat as well as being the actor playing all of those characters? Yeah, it was hugely empowering. I don't know that I'm ever giving that hat back. <laughs> <laughs> I've hidden it in my closet and they're going to have to take it from me. Um, you know, I'm very grateful to have had this experience at this point in my life when I felt empowered rather than overwhelmed and where I felt able with you know, a really great partnership with Adam and the whole team to be able to be like, can't be your director this minute because I'm really working on this other thing. Um, but then also having the ability to say at any moment of rehearsal, hold up, hold up, hold up, I need this. Or probably the most valuable because um, you know, actors generally, for those who might not know this, you know, we don't get to pick which scenes we work on every day. Somebody plans that for us. You know, the director says, we're gonna work on this scene today and you just show up and you have to do it because they need to see what they need to see in order to be able to put the show together, right? And I mean, 
I came in with, at one point I said to Adam, I don't want to do it in order. <laughs> he said, okay. And I said, I want to do the long ones first. Uh. And he said, okay. And so we did the show, we rehearsed the show completely out of order, but what the, and I didn't even know why I was asking for that. But what it turned out was I got the more exhausting pieces out of the way first. So the shorter ones were easier to work on as the mm. work became harder, right? And we were able to do more of them in a day, which meant I felt like I was making more progress. You know, it was this sort of whole psychological game of like, how do I keep myself? Because we had six hour rehearsals that were just me and these words. Um, and so to be able to keep my brain engaged in a way that felt productive. And again, Adam was just so like, sure, whatever you want. We could work on only one today, whatever you want to do. But that's not something I would have expected a director to allow me allow me to do if I hadn't had that, you know, sort of parody. Um, and simply being able to just say, I need to stop working on this one right now mm. because it's getting counterproductive and we should move into something else. Great. Um, but at the same time, I would never have wanted to be a solo director on this piece because the outside eye was absolutely critical. And, you know, everything from, from Adam and I, you know, making each other laugh, saying the same thing at the same time, or, you know, butting heads over a certain idea and having to really untangle each of our own ideas about that thing and be able to articulate it to the other person. And then sometimes be like, oh no, you're right actually. Now that I've said it, I, yeah, that's not right. Or trying it and, and, and being able to, I mean, it's, it was a beautiful collaboration and I'm incredibly grateful for it. Yeah, thanks Adam. Oh, it's not here, but. <laughs> <laughs> you love you, Adam. And, 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 and to piggyback back off that some, I mean, how, how do you think going forward, this might change or alter your process as a director? You know, I, I'm, I was just talking with a playwright yesterday whose piece I'm going to be directing at Emory next year. And I was saying, I'm really interested in taking apart the rehearsal process. Mm. I'm really interested in doing that. You know, we're engaged in this very fraught moment, the American theater. Yes, we are. Uh, where we're trying to figure out not just our issues in terms of misogyny and, and culture and racism and all this other stuff, but truly, I think personally, it's a labor issue, mm. right? It's a labor issue. We have always asked our artists of too much, too much of our artists and, and under-resourced them to do the too much we are asking them to do, always. Mm -hmm. And as a young artist, it becomes a badge of honor that you can do that, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so we're, 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 we're training our young artists to be grateful for what you get, right. work 10 jobs, don't complain, you're lucky to have it, you know, all of that. And, uh, I'll never forget one of my one of my mentors way back in the day said, you know, just because a plumber loves plumbing, nobody tells them they should do it for free. Right. But people say to us, well, you know, I know you're not getting paid for it, but you love it. So, you know, and <laughs> it's like, that's not the thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the labor issue for me goes toward process. Right. And we have, you know, all of these rituals, you know, you come in the first day and the first thing you do is a read through of the play. Mm -hmm. And I was saying to my playwright, I said, what if we didn't do a read through? What if we had them do the, what if we told them it's their responsibility to read the play? And what if the first day was everybody has to bring in some content that they think is related to this piece and share it oh, with that. the group, like a design presentation, but for mm -hmm. actors, 
you know? I don't know. But for me as a director, having this sort of double consciousness, if you will, in this process has allowed me to think differently about how to direct and, and what might be useful for actors that is outside the form that we're used to that can be more supportive um, in terms of that labor issue of how do we actually support the actor, the performer in what they're doing and not just sort of slot every project into this same template, which is, right. when you think about it, is ridiculous. <laughs> right, it, it, it's interesting because Matt and I were having a similar conversation earlier, this idea of, you know, what, what would it be like to decolonize the rehearsal process? How might that change, not only the way we work, but how might that change and alter and deepen the quality of the work? If we start to sort of question these established norms about how, how we're supposed to do this thing. I, I, I certainly can say even just this, this small way that I experienced left me much more creatively um, open to new processes, right? And that's part of the work too. Like part of the reason that we don't invite people of other backgrounds or other cultures or other beliefs into our spaces is because we fear difference, mm -hmm. right? We fear that they're gonna mess with the thing that we like to, because we do it this way and oh, you do it that way. And right. we can't use your dishes. We can't use your ovens, whatever. And so, <laughs> you know, but if you can break down those if you can break down your self-reliance on your own sacred cows, you know, if you can break down your need to have this structure that makes you feel comfortable, like does a lot of that work for you, I think, because then you're ready to understand someone else. You're ready to welcome someone else's ideas. And I think it's like that readiness that sometimes we're lacking. I mean, how many times has somebody come to me with an idea, a creative idea or, you know, a, a student or a friend or whatever, and you go, oh, I don't think so. And then you think about it later, and you're like, actually, that's not a bad idea. Part of it is just that you're not ready to receive the new idea. Right. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm really interested in thinking about going forward is how, to, how do we make ourselves more ready to receive? And what does a rehearsal process look like that, that, that functions in support of that? Well, um... I think we, we just want to thank you for for your openness, for your labor, for your uh, kindness in sharing your crafting process with all of us, uh, both tonight and also during the other show. Thank you. I'm thank so you. sad that we're finishing this weekend. Oh. <laughs>